Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is London is Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And you know what? Last week, we really were listening to the sound of London. We were hearing music made out of the sounds of Tower Bridge. And that formed the first part of a run here of arts in the city. So last week, it was all about music. Next week, I'll be talking to a performer who, room by room, is creating a parallel London. And this week, it's all about literature, and in particular, the literature concerning a figure whose pipe-smoking, deer-stalker-wearing silhouette is familiar to anybody who's travelled through Baker Street State. And by the way, if you're worried that creativity and the arts are getting more than their fair share of airtime, I couldn't agree more with you. And to redress that imbalance, we're going to be announcing a very exciting partnership with a major scientific institution in London and getting to know about some of the scientific innovation that has taken place in the capital. I'm pretty sure Holmes would approve of that. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a long through from your front door. think I've made a discovery and it's about power. I think what I've worked out is that if you have, listener, the power to control the ambient music in the location in which you find yourself, then you really do wield power. That's true power. My guest today has that power. We'll come on to the serious stuff and background for Bonnie McBird in just a moment, but how have you earned this power, Bonnie? Well, I order a lot of room service and I think that's it. They've gotten used to my demanding, like, you know, extra cream and things. Oh, you're, you're a nuisance. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no. They're just very nice about it. <laughs> we should say we're at the Sherlock Holmes Hotel. That's going to form an important part of what we're here to talk about. Um, uh, Bonnie McBird, the CV is impressive. If you were a Boy Scout, you'd need a, a longer sleeve to fit all the badges on here. The screenwriter and producer and novelist and watercolorist and winner of uh, many Golden Eagles and I think three 
Emmys. And you, uh, you're working out of Hollywood and the Sherlock Holmes Hotel. Yes, that's exactly right. Then they, they sort of have similarities. Uh, both of them are kind of colourful and <laughs> have fans. <laughs> And both of them feel like places where the attachment of the feet to the ground might not be solid all of the time. They strike me as transient places. Hollywood has that idea of a slight superficiality, well, huge superficiality. They sound like very interesting and strange environments in which to find yourself for most of the time. Yes, the, the connection to reality is a little tenuous in both places, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, uh, but Sherlock Holmes, being a fictional character, of course, is, is the centerpiece of this play. At least, uh, at least by the name Sherlock Holmes, and it's on Baker Street, of course, which is famous for Sherlock Holmes. But uh, when I booked this hotel for the first time, I thought it was going to be like a Disneyland version of Sherlock Holmes with, you know, kitschy stuff everywhere, and I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, so this was uh, this was a good move that it didn't have deer stalkers adorning the walls. It doesn't have deer stalkers everywhere. However, instead of the Bible in your drawer by your bed, is the complete Sherlock Holmes. That's brilliant. It is. It endeared me immediately. Uh, but also, there's just a few kind of subtle artworks around, but that's pretty much it. But actually, this the reason I ended up staying here, so I came here on a lark for three days during the Olympic summer, but the reason I ended up staying here is that it's the perfect place to work. So I've been spending like three to four months a year here. And what, what makes it the perfect place to work? Well, Baker Street, like it was in the 18, or the 19th century, is very much a commercial street. And uh, so when you're, sitting, when you're working, if you're a writer, you basically work a lot of hours and you get very hungry and you run. There's restaurants all up and down the street here. And there's uh, Ryman's next door. There's Tesco and Sainsbury's. There's the post office across the street. So literally, every, and Boots about a block away. Everything you want to just live and work without being distracted is, is right here. Yeah, right. Nothing disrupts the creative flow more than having to prepare your sandwiches for lunch. Exactly. You don't, you don't want to do anything but work. And uh, you can even stay in your pajamas all day in your room and basically just throw on a coat and run out and get a sandwich. <laughs> I know that sounds, that sounds ridiculous, but, but for a writer, it's really wonderful to hole up in a hotel. And a lot of my writer friends do it. The product of your three years on and off here is uh, the book in front of us here. It's called Art in the Blood, and it's a Sherlock Holmes adventure. And the, the first thing that struck me, actually, just reading through the notes at the, before the story starts, is the disclaimer about who owns the characters and all that. And it struck me straight away that must be a bit of a nightmare, potentially, to work out whether you're actually allowed to use the characters and to what extent can you represent them and so forth. Yeah, well, that's a question that comes up frequently. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is out of copyright worldwide, except for the last 10 stories in the United States alone. So the character's out of copyright and all the stories elsewhere. So um, that's pretty clear, and that's been you know examined by various lawyers all the way up the food chain. So, so it's, it's pretty uh, well stated at this point. And I, I must say, in the first couple of pages, I had a sinking feeling because I noticed a reference to the Whitechapel murders. Yes, it's not about Jack the Ripper. <laughs> uh, Jack the Ripper is mentioned in the first couple of pages in that this my story takes place in December of 1888. So Holmes and Watson are quite young, 34 and 35, uh, very hip young men and very active. But uh, it's just post-Ripper. It's, well, the last... Uh, 
verified killing of the Ripper has taken place. And, you know, the, the police are in a bit of a tumult over this. And this has been written about a million times, and, and some very well. Um, but but it was, it's not the subject of this story. But it, it starts out with Holmes in a bit of a bad shape, uh, presumably from some kind of uh, leftover effect, some, some residual effect from the case. He'd got in trouble with somebody, and so he's... He's not in good shape at the beginning of my story. Now, how does this work? You mentioned the, the particulars of their respective ages. There's an author who comes to mind, Christopher Fowler, who has a series of novels involving the same characters who pop up at a number of different times. Their timelines don't necessarily quite follow through one book to another, and that's fine. But I'm wondering whether you've got a lot of people who are very into Sherlock Holmes and would uh, call you on a tiny error. There are legions of serious Sherlockians, and it was one of my goals with this book to write for the most discerning Sherlockian as well as the general public. So, in fact, there is a there are dates for their births that are accepted by the uh, students of the canon, which is, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle's complete works, which is uh, 54 short stories, uh, 56 short stories, and four novellas. So people who are deadly serious about it know that in 1888 they were 34 and 35. And so I don't mess around with the canon because one of the decisions I made in setting out to do this was that I wouldn't contradict canon. And uh, I wanted to do that just so that it wouldn't pull that group of people out of the story. And also just because sort of um, these are like artistic freeing constraints, if you know what I mean. They're kind of like when you make a set of rules for yourself and then try to create something really interesting around those rules, it becomes, uh, it's more fun in a way. So I wanted it to actually work for the people who are the toughest about this. So I researched the heck out of this book. I'm going to be very disappointed if you haven't read cover to cover your bedside book. Oh, I have many times, actually. I, I first read the canon entirely at age 10. And, and a lot of my friends actually started that young. I mean, it appeals to kids. It's, a, it's about a renegade character, somebody who doesn't follow the rules of society, who's smarter than everybody else, and who gets away with a lot. This is very appealing. <laughs> well, now, this is very interesting, because your career, the big milestone, I guess, early on seems to have been that you co-wrote Tron which, of course, is very tech-heavy, and you've had a lot of technically-oriented roles since then. So it sounds as though perhaps this marks a return or an indulgence of an idea that was in your mind from very young. Smart characters. I think that's the, that's the connecting tissue here. I've always been really interested in super, super smart people. Um, in fact, I'm married to one. He's kind of a Sherlock Holmes person. He's a computer scientist. He invented the term personal computer, and it was his group that Steve Jobs visited, and it became the Mac. So, I mean, I've I've always been, in my life and in my fiction, drawn to really, really smart people. And I'm not interested in reading about compromised heroes, you know, the Dexters of the world, you know, Robin Hood serial killers. I'm not interested in that. I want super smart people with integrity and a lot of humor. That's the, so, so both of those were, were parts of Tron. Now, well, I, I, now I need to call you, I think, because representations I've seen of uh, Holmes would suggest that he is compromised in some ways. He is compromised. He's a, he's a flawed hero. Um, he's not compromised morally, though. He has addictions. He's, he can be rude. He's not socially very adept or really that caring. He doesn't have any romantic relationships, and we don't. And canon doesn't explain why. And I don't actually explain why, but I have an idea. You know, so he's not a fully rounded, happy person. 
And I think, you know, it's really interesting. When you have a hero, they have to have flaws. Otherwise, they're just, you know, boring super people. <laughs> and so, yes, he does have flaws. But it's the moral compromise that I'm not really, I don't like. Uh, that's why I don't like those kind of characters who take lives because it seems like the right thing to do at the time. Holmes would never kill anybody unless it's in self-defense or to defend a you know, client or Watson or something. He, he wouldn't just shoot an unarmed person. No, I, I suppose the glaring question is why that is, why that preference? Why preference for me? Yeah, I wondered, for example, do you feel uneasy in the company of a character who isn't morally straight, for example? No, I just think that that's the prevalent thing in our culture, and this is refreshing. And I also think that um, that this kind of this character, that one of the reasons that Sherlock Holmes is probably the most enduring and one and prob- maybe the most popular character fiction of all time, is this quality, is this fact that he's, you know, he's complicated and he's weird and he's not comfortable necessarily, uh, and he's certainly not normal and he has flaws, and yet he is just a really he's an honorable man and he represents a a kind of time and place that doesn't exist anymore, but we would like it to. There's a coziness factor to 221B, and you return to 221B, and the and the morality and the the code of honor of these two guys. It's just very comforting in our really crazy times. So that's why. Well, that's, okay. So I'm glad you brought the fact that there's two of them up because in discussions of Holmes, Watson very often gets uh, sidelined or the, the attention. Even uh, in a lot of the stories and in yours, it's a first-person narrative from the point of Watson looking at Holmes, and it, in some ways he acts as a lens, and one forgets that he's there. So I wonder what were the challenges there in writing from the point of this slightly invisible character. Well, uh, Watson actually has a very uh, strong presence. In the, in the canon. First of all, almost all of the stories are written first person as Watson. A couple of them are not. Uh, but Watson, you, you see all the action and you see everything that Holmes does through the lens of, of this man. And this guy himself is an interesting character. First of all, he's not the bumbling Nigel Bruce that you know was popular in those films. Um, but he's rather he's a he's an ex-military man. He's a crack shot. He's brave. He was invalided out of the war. He's seen violence. He is uh, a ladies' man. He's very attracted to the ladies, and they to him. He has a knowledge of women in three continents. This is all in the canon. So he's quite a he's quite a you know a character himself. And although Watts and Holmes occasionally makes fun of him and says things like um, you know you see but you do not observe that kind of thing. The fact is he's very observant, and he. He really sees his friend and calls him on all his crap <laughs> completely. What I admire so much about the relationship structure Conan Doyle laid down here is that this is a great way to represent a an enigmatic genius is to, to be external to him all the time. Yes, exactly. And by contrast, he's he's a normal guy. I mean, he's he feels more normally about different people. He gets offended at certain things. He gets attracted to women, etc. So he is the lens of normal, but he's also a very affectionate person. And we. Holmes is uh, Holmes is like a rare orchid. I mean, he's he's very weird, and and so seeing him through the lens of this sort of guy who we grow to trust, and we think like, well, that's what I'd think of him if I were there too, you know. And, and it's quite fun because you know uh, Holmes will say really weird things, and I mean, this is done very well now in the modern you know the modern adaptation of BBC Sherlock, for example, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch. Martin Freeman's character is always saying, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> it's like, and 
this is, you know, this is in canon. This is actually there from the beginning. Something that's often struck me is it's a really pleasing image in some ways because very often you'll see a book with a gruesome title, and we all take comfort in murder stories in that strange way. But you'll, you'll very often see a book that suggests a gruesome contents, and you'll look to see who's reading it, and um, it's not the sort of person you might expect. And I was wondering who you think Conan Doyle was writing for, and who seems to be the audience for a, a Sherlock Holmes, a good Sherlock Holmes yarn? Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, well, of course, you, you're not going to say only, only this audience. <laughs> What's the demographic? Well, the demographic in Conan Doyle's time was was huge, was wide. It was pretty much all ages, starting from kids. Uh, when I grew up, you know, a lot of kids got into it at age ten. I would say age ten and up. Um, but but the appeal, you know, we all like chill and scariness and we're very safe in our armchairs right but we're reading very very scary stuff these are adventures and people get in danger and there's blood and there's murders and there's you know awful stuff happening so um that's fun you know when you're it's the same thrill as a roller coaster you're not really gonna die but you're you're, you feel like you're coming close Well, now, okay, so how comfortable, because there is a comfort factor in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Some of those old Basil Rathbone films, they feel like a wet Sunday afternoon with a log fire going. It's it's comfort fodder, as a lot of detective um, fiction seems to be. There's resolution at the end, there's a feeling that the, the world's been set to order. So how do you balance danger and comfort? Well, that's a good question, because uh, for one thing, uh, almost all the stories in my book, Art in the Blood, also starts and ends at 221B, which is a place we all love to be. (laughs) Um, And then, but in the interim, you're right, I mean, the reality gets stretched, and 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 there's terror and danger and, and violence and so forth, but again, it gets set right. But the, but the journey, the journey is what you're writing for. And so Conan Doyle wrote adventures, not just mysteries, but there is a mystery element. So there's a clockwork element that teases your brain, that makes you want to figure out things along with Holmes or ahead of him if you can. And, and so there's a kind of a pact with the reader about that stuff that you need to put all the clues in. You can't do a rabbit from the hat. So there's that element. So it's like a it's like a Sudoku puzzle. You know, it's like all the things that you, you float all around the answers until they finally all click in and then boom you've got the solution. So that's very pleasing to people to to tease their brain in that way. And at the same time you've got this roller coaster thing of like, oh we're going to the top, we're going to the top and oh no, oh no, there's gonna be a murder you know, and it's scary and you know, you fulfill the violence and the, the there's always an outre kind of element to the Conan Doyle stories, and, and in my book as well, there's things that surprise you that you may not be expecting, visual things and so forth. Yeah, I was going to ask about the visual, actually. So, clearly, the first 30 pages is not a large sample upon which to base a, a sweeping statement. I should say the book arrived with me by courier this morning. I am a full 30 pages in, but it struck me that the visual actually seems toned down and it leans towards the dialogic somewhat. And I wondered, with your background, whether that might be a habit or a preference, but I also wondered whether maybe the fact that we're so familiar with what Holmes and Watson may look like and what their world looks like, that you can afford to lean to some extent on our shared pre-understanding. 
Well, that's a good question. Actually, as the as the story progresses, um, there are quite a few more visuals. For example, they go to Paris and they go to Montmartre, and there's the uh, they go to the Chanoir, where there's something called the Theater of Shadow, Le Théâtre d'Ombre, and uh, that's a thing where they project these almost like Balinese shadow puppets through a translucent screen, and some very violent stuff happens there. So there's actually quite a bit of very visual stuff in here, and also it's about an art theft, among other things, and there's a gigantic statue that's as, like the Winged Victory. And so, so there is a fair amount, and, there, and also Holmes has to pose as an art expert, so there's a fair amount, and there's some stuff in the Louvre with paintings and so forth. So there are visual elements. Um, however, what I was trying to do was actually emulate the style of Conan Doyle. He wrote in a different style from his contemporaries. He wrote more dialogue than they did. He wrote less description, certainly less introspection. Uh, he, he placed you each place, but he didn't, you know, lovingly describe all the carpets and the this and the that, you know, and he didn't wax poetic about the snowstorm. It was just a snowstorm, and now their train was going to be stalled out. You know, he used, basically his, his visuals were in service of plot, which is more typical of an adventure story, and which makes him a very contemporary style writer. So when you emulate him, I mean, I actually kept the canon open next to me, and I would, um, you know, I would start each writing session by reading aloud from Conan Doyle to basically, because I'm, I'm an actor as well, and I would get that sort of in my body, you know, that, that, that rhythm and that sort of thing. And then, so actually, it's very much in his style. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so it's, uh, that's how you... Uh, retain the sense of paciness right. and uh, yeah uh, so you, you give a sort of an impressionistic sense of, of back, uh, background right. but you don't need to lavish words on it in a uh, sort of a higher literary style when the focus really is on, on the puzzle on the interactions between yes. these very and it's great conversations <laughs> that you, you've woven through the book well thank you I, I love writing dialogue it's it's really fun for me and, I, and so I'm thrilled I think that's one of the reasons I've been drawn to Conan Doyle is that he has very snappy dialogue there's actually a huge amount of humour in the original so you know that's throughout my book as well I mean it's it's really important to me that this be a fun ride as well as a scary one. We need to pause and find out how this operation is being funded. So we're going to take a quick word from our sponsor. We'll be back to talk about London more generally and how the Welcome Collection features in this. And um, also I want a timeline on your marriage. So we'll be back in just a second. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Londonist Out Loud is free every week. You can support the show and Londonist via the Londonist shop, where you'll find excellent gift ideas, including London postcard t-shirts, the secrets of the tube DVD, chunky logo mugs, tote bags, hoodies, the Inspector Sands tea, and the Londonist Oyster card holder. Treat yourself, support us, and share your love of London at londonist.com shop. 
You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and with me, Bonnie McBird, who is the author of Art in the Blood of Sherlock Holmes' Adventure. Uh, she's currently in an alarmed state due to my <laughs> tease across the break there. Uh, no, I was just wondering about your uh, about the timeline of your marriage, because uh, Trom went out in, I think, 83 or 82? Yes, 82. 82. And then you married your husband, who's a computer programmer. The story, so Tron is about a computer programmer, oh, and, yes. and you married a computer programmer one year later and uh, I just I want to know the story <laughs> okay I was researching Tron and at, at that time there were only two computer stores in all of LA there were little homebrew shops where you bought electronics parts and there were a couple of books I bought a book there read about people who were working in what was to become but wasn't yet Silicon Valley I went up to interview them and Alan was the last person of the day he was at Xerox Park which some people may recognize that name that's where all the seminal work was done that, that became the face of computing that we do today, basically the, de- the desktop metaphor, uh, the, the graphical user interface, all that was done there, and in fact it was done at Alan's group. So I met him, and I hired him as the technical consultant on the film, and we worked together for more than a year on the film and fell in love. What did he... Well, I think we know what he thought of you, but what did he think of your uh, projects? What, what did he think of you taking this line into uh, his world? Um, well, no, he was very interested. It wasn't a completely new thing for me because I actually studied computer science in, at Stanford and I took. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 
computer programming from a kind of a megawatt personality named Donald Knuth, who is a big guy in the computing world. So Stanford is, has become kind of the hotbed of training for this stuff. Um, so I had already taken computer programming and was interested in it, and I'd worked at Universal. I tried to get them to put all their story uh, analysis stuff on computers to, you know, just basically to catalog it. But um, So I was already really interested in computers and, and had some a small amount of literacy in it. And my I did a master's in film. My thesis was on teaching children to read using a talking computer. So, as a, you know, I'd already had some, I guess, computer cred. So he wasn't completely surprised at that. But we hit it off, and uh, we had a lot of fun working together. The Bruce Boxleitner character in Tron is based on Alan. It got watered down a bit uh, in the in the final version. I'm not super happy about it but the original one was quite funny and in fact was written for Robin Williams huh. um, meeting you as a novelist I must tell you I've just had my expectations of how that part of your life was going to look completely reversed uh, it makes me wonder if, we, if it would have been better when I introduced you to just list the things you haven't done oh <laughs> I don't know what to say about that <laughs> no. but it might, it might have been more economic I mean, how, where on earth do you find that time um, I'm kind of a non-stop worker, and this way I really relate to Sherlock Holmes. The, my blog is The Professional Enthusiast, <laughs> because Watson once said in one of his famous funny understatements about Holmes, I had not the professional enthusiasm which carried my companion on. So this is when Holmes is like running through the moors, and Watson is like this, because I get so enthused, I get so excited about what I'm doing, I love what I do, so I'm never bored. Do you ever lock the door? Is is the work world ever on the other side of something and, and it's all about you? Is there a bubble around you at any point in your life? I'm not sure I understand that. Can you try to... Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, work work and life are, are very thoroughly integrated there and yeah. it sounds like you're... Uh, the, the, do you have the Duracell bunny in the US? Uh, the, yes, the, we do. Yes, okay. So um, I've got an image of uh, a lot of energy going on there, but do you find a time when uh, you allow yourself to stop drumming... No, 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 not by the looks of it. <laughs> actually, actually, that no, and in fact, I uh, I have trouble with that, I, and, and I am like Sherlock Holmes in that sense. I am my work. I really feel like I am my work, uh, and I started meditating uh, a few years ago. In fact, right at the beginning, just prior to the beginning of this novel, and my meditating has actually helped me do the the ex- the extended effort over several years to do this because uh, it's really an iterative process to write a novel it's like you do a draft and that you're not done <laughs> do you know about that so so there were many many iterations of this novel and then I also did illustrations and annotations and I just the stamina the mental stamina for that was helped by my meditation and it also helped me slow down because this is a marathon not a sprint and it's a, a marathon that involves Victorian meditation. I noticed in your acknowledgments you've got a, a, a Victorian meditation advisor. Uh, well, yes, actually, I came across in my research, um, the, well, Sherlock Holmes does do meditation in the canon. It's not referred to as meditation, although it's described, and it's probably what we would now call mindfulness meditation, which, you know, wasn't it wasn't called that then. But I did some research, and there was a wonderful book that was like the hot book in London right about then. 
then it was called the Light of Asia. And all things what they called Oriental were very popular at that time. It was it was the vogue. So not only the art, but the clothing and all kinds of things. But the Light of Asia was really about uh, meditation. And there became a, there was something called the Pali Text Society, which started about then. It was right in London. Uh, it's since moved out of London. But they they had they taught Vipassana meditation, which is what we call mindfulness now. So he would he could have contacted that then probably did because Conan Doyle himself was a seeker of all kinds of things science and and spiritualism and other things he was always learning he was a he you know he read and he attended conferences and things it's very likely that he knew about this. I guess we better bring it back to London at some point, didn't we? Um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes obviously being identified with London, but you identify, I think, with London I as well. I do. I've identified with London. I, I guess I've been an Anglophile since I was a little kid. Uh, it, it seemed like everything cool came from London. When I was little, it was Haley Mills, and then it was David McCallum and the Man from Uncle, and it was James Bond and the Beatles. And I mean, everything cool came from England, and I wanted to be in London since the time I was a little kid and I first got here at 19 and bought you know velvet hot pants in Carnaby Street it was back then <laughs> and yeah, Carnaby Street now might be a little different <laughs> it's a little different now but you know it was it was the mecca of cool for me as a, you know growing up and um, and I love Sherlock Holmes so yet another reason to want to come to London and I used we my husband and I used to come here a lot in the 90s we were very close friends with um, Douglas Adams and his wife and so we used to stay with them in Islington and and uh, that, that London was different from this London, but it was just delightful. And um, so then I started coming again just recently, in the, uh, three years ago. Did you find your hosts took the same delight in London? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jane Belson was his wife, and um, they both, my husband and I, had what we called restaurant wars with them. (laughs) I hope I'm going to be able to remember the restaurants. But when they would come to L.A., we would take them to our favorite restaurants and say, see how good this is. And then when we would come here, they would say, see how good this is. We have it better than you. So we had restaurant wars. I'm dying to know, is that was a, a dish that persuaded you that they were right or wrong, definitively? Oh, I can't remember the dish. One of the restaurants was Bibendum, and another one was on the river. Oh, I can't remember it. On the, on the south side on the river, and I can't, I'm so sorry. You sh- this would well, be a perfect London thing if I could remember you these. I can't remember what you had for dinner 30 years no, ago. No, I can't. I really can't. I really 20 can't. years, not 30 years ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, though. okay. <laughs> But I do remember loving London, and um, there's so many places here. I, I would move here in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, you kind of have. I kind of, I, I sort of have. I spend three months to four months a year, and uh, it's not enough, though. I would really prefer this to be my home base. What are the practicalities of juggling to home bases? I can imagine certain personal circumstances where that just really wouldn't fly, you know, certain dependence of certain ages and that type of thing. But how do you manage this transatlantic life? Um, well, I, I certainly don't bring my house with me. We have a gigantic library, and my husband has a pipe organ. So, so we're not You're easy. kidding. <laughs> no, just as Sherlock Holmes is my hero, uh, Captain Nemo is his. Right, let me just digest that for a moment. <laughs> right. Uh, what does that look like in practical terms? Uh, you mean the, the organ? Or we uh, have... No, no, the... Uh, <laughs> 
if a pipe organ is one of the manifestations <laughs> of this interest, right, right. I mean, I think your home probably is uh, bedecked with Nemo paraphernalia and, and deerstalker dog hats. It sounds like not really. We're not fans in that sense. It's more. It's more uh, of pursuits. Um, so, so we do have actually a wonderful life size or not life size uh, scale model of the Nautilus in our music room. <laughs> life size model of the Nautilus. <laughs> yeah, not life size. Sorry, uh, we have a scale model of the Nautilus, and my husband has this beautiful Baroque uh, German style pipe organ and built a a room for it and there's a library in the room and he and I are both like insanely avid readers so there's thousands of books there which would preclude my just upping and moving here instantly however no no it would preclude uh, his surely (laughs) yeah yeah well we can't bring those things with us But um, but on the other hand, my husband was just here with me, and he discovered an organ he loves in um, farming, Framingham, Farmingham. So oh no, yeah, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few very Farm- similar. Yeah, yeah. Places. Anyway, it's not it's not very far outside of London, and he's been taking the train there and going to play the organ. <laughs> He's got an organ in uh, two continents. That's right. That part of part of his it was his being able to spend time here is to locate an organ that he could play. But but really, it's about for him. It's about the renegade scientist. That's what Captain Nemo was to him, and he is sort of that in his life. Are you a renegade scientist? Um, no, but I love one. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, an, a thought. Um, I wondered if it was wise to bring up Guy Ritchie at some point. Sure, and absolutely. mentioning Captain Nemo makes me sure that I must, because there was that film with uh, Sean Connery uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, League, of League, of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, yes. exactly. And with both of those, it seemed like they'd... It didn't feel like they'd stayed true to the cerebral spirit of the, uh, yes. of the books. Yes. There's a lot of recent iterations of Sherlock Holmes, and particularly the Guy Ritchie one. Uh, has Some people have complained that there's too much emphasis on action, and that isn't really, you know, that doesn't really suit Conan Doyle. But I would disagree with that. Um, first of all, there's tons of action in the canon. It's just that he wrote short stories and novellas, so in each one there's usually, like, just one, one element and sometimes not any but often just one but in the canon people have their throats ripped out they're thrown acid on Holmes himself is running you know across uh, the moors and being attacked and being hit by bricks and beat up and he's saving lots of I mean all kinds of action it permeates the canon it's just it's just sprinkled through and here's the other thing um, from my screenwriting uh uh, work. The thing is, if you're writing a long-form piece, and a novel is a long-form, and also a movie is long-form, you need, it's like a suspension bridge over a, a, a wider area of water. You need more posts. So in screenwriting terms, these are called tentpole scenes. So a tentpole scene is a scene of great action, or it's a scene of great emotional turmoil. And you need more of those in a long-form thing. So in my novel, it's been commented that I have a fair amount of action. And um, maybe that's from my screenwriting background. But it's really inherent in the actual um, the, the length of the thing. Plus... Um, Conan Doyle wrote adventures. He didn't call them the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. He called them the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And that's because they, they, 
they put their characters in physical jeopardy. And I, do, I have to admit, I chose to do that. But I think the other thing that, that is complained about in the Guy Ritchie films, it's really not that he has more action, it's that he lovingly portrayed it. He put it in slow-mo, but he did that for an effect to show Holmes's mental processes. And I personally love that. I yeah, love it's that a very it's, clever technique, isn't it? It really is. It really is, and it works. Um, and one of my, I think he also got the character quite right. So one of my favorite scenes is him in the restaurant waiting for, um, waiting for Watson and his fiance Mary to show up. And he, he's taking in too much. There's too much stimuli. He's overloaded, and he can't take it. And in that sense, it's interesting because I think Holmes, this is arguable, but I think he's almost a little Asperger's, uh, and he's certainly uh, almost bipolar. So, I mean, those are modern terms for these things, the description of this character. But he is he is uh, compromised in those ways. He has, and that's sort of the subtext of my, uh, of my novel, is what does it mean to have an artistic nature which isn't necessarily those two elements but certainly has to do with taking in more detail than the normal uh, person because an artist has like bigger antenna out they're picking up the nuances of what's being said and how people are behaving whereas uh, a non-artistic person just has less view of these things but the exchange for that increased sensitivity is usually sort of emotional ability uh, and and sort of a vulnerability to mood swings and so forth that's definitely in the canon it's definitely Sherlock Holmes so it's what are the what is the Janus faced gift of the artistic temperament that's kind of a subtext in in art in the blood I, I sense you've said that sentence before I have said it a couple of times but um, yes it's true um, because I think I think a novel requires a little bit of thematic content, whereas a short story you can get away with crime doesn't pay as your thing. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work in a, a long-form piece. But I wanted to ask about, because you're mid-launch at the moment, I know you've got a staggered launch across the UK, US. UK one's been brought forward slightly, but as this goes out, we're, we're still in the launch period. On a practical level, what are the suggestions that you would make to somebody who has to do very similar interviews repeatedly? How do you keep the enthusiasm for the subject up? How do you keep fresh? Well, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I think you do it the same way you do as an actor when you're in a play, which is um, be in the moment and, and, um, and love what you do. And if, you, if those two things are happening... Um, then it is fresh each time. Um, and this stuff is very meaningful to me. I mean, I, I love it, and I'm, I think it's funny also, but it is very, very deeply meaningful to me, this, this whole notion of art in the blood and, and the, the vulnerability connected to that. My mother's an artist. Conan Doyle's father was an artist. Um, and, and I think, you know, I've gone through life with this kind of sensitivity uh, and, you know, while it's a blessing, it really is sometimes very hard to live with. So this stuff isn't, you know, casual to me. It's actually deeply meaningful. So when I reconnect to it each time, it's important to me. Does that make sense? It certainly does. It certainly does. It also, I mean, the, the amateur psychologist in me is wondering whether being uh, partnered with somebody who is not an artist it might be the best way to stay sane. Um, well, that... 
sounds right. However, somebody who's not an artist at all doesn't really get the artistic temperament. And science and art are very much connected because they're both about the aha. If you read, you know, like Arthur Kessler said, you know, there's the there's the joke, which is the ha. There's the science discovery, which is the aha. And then there's the art, which is the ah. You know, and so all three of these are really, really connected. So my husband, um, he is a, he's a musician by by avocation, and so he has oh, of course, yes, of, yeah. the, yes, it was sitting right there in front yeah. of us. Yeah. So he he is very sensitive to all this stuff and understands it. And I'm really grateful because if he didn't, he would just look at me as a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> she says, laughing maniacally. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well. We're nudging towards the back end of the show now, and I don't want to leave this before talking about the research for the book, which was supposed to take a total of three days. Well, the, the research in London, I actually uh, plan to pop over here and, and just spend a few days doing some research. And I ended up now basically living part of each year here because I love it so much and I came over with the intention it was the Olympic summer and um, I was going to pop into the city and then get out before the Olympics started when it was going to be all crowded but instead I just stayed three weeks so I booked the Sherlock Holmes Hotel kind of on a lark just thinking well it's on Baker Street it'll be fun Uh, and it'll probably be silly but three days well, it turns out this is the place to do a lot of work because it's centrally located and uh, the Baker Street tube connects with everything and I wanted to see everything. So I started doing research at the Wellcome Library and um, that was um, research on some medical issues that I had. Uh, Watson, of course, is a medical doctor, so it's written in the, in the first person from a medical standpoint. I've always been interested in medical things, so I researched cocaine, uh, the usage of cocaine in, at that time, but I also researched a few other things like how they treated shock and blood loss at the time, the state of transfusions and so forth. All this is actually in the book, uh, some very exciting stuff in there. But I was I was researching there on the first day, and uh, I missed one of the runs for the... They go and fetch the antique books for you. And I missed one of the runs. They said, oh, we should go, uh, go where we all eat down the street there. There's some pretty good pasta at this little place. So I walked down. Of course, that little place was Speedy's. Speedy's is the restaurant featured in uh, BBC Sherlock so it's it's the one next door to 221B in in the show uh, so a lot of Sherlockians will, will get that and, and it was just like so so funny and serendipitous um, and now I like the avocado salad there much more than the pasta but anyway I go there a lot it's quite good but it's obviously 221B Baker Street and there's been a tremendous uh, controversy over where that actually would have been on Baker Street the hotel itself is is, uh, was Bedford Women's College at uh, Ladies College at the, that time, so that's where I'm staying. 221B is not where the museum is, but it actually, according to Sherlockian experts, is down where tossed salads is. And so, so you can imagine the stairway of uh, 221B, the 17 steps, kind of floating through the middle of tossed salads. Why is there such controversy? Um, well, uh, people try to figure out from the clues in the canon where it was, and. Um, the, the people who determined it was at Tossed Salads were the closest in detail, and they got this from the story, mainly the story of the empty house, which is a chase, and they end up in the house directly opposite of 221B, and that's where Sebastian Moran 
tries to shoot poems from that window. So, um, so it's it's the, the the chase leading up to there that has determined exactly where it is. The other thing is um, in my novel as well is um, Bermondsey, and there are two things that were going on there that were very big. First of all, it smelled really weird there because Peekfreen Biscuit Company was there, so this massive baking smell of cookies, basically biscuits, um, and then at the same time the tannery business were, was there, so that kind of very strong smell of all the chemicals used in it. So this whole place like was very odiferous, and there's a kind of a, a scene set in there. Um, uh, so those two things, and also Brown's Hotel, which is still the tea room is used in my book, and it's still pretty much exactly as it was then. So I started doing research at the Welcome Library, and um, the uh, they brought me these antique little uh, books. They were tied with linen ribbons, and the, I mean, and I realized that these are things that could have been owned by John Watson. They could have been part of his collection, and that gave me the idea of the preface for the book, which is that there was a, an un, unpublished tale, longer than most, that was attached to the back of one of these. So you get to make a, a cameo in the novel, actually. Right. I, I did a, uh, I did a, uh, an introduction about that. There's a little introduction about how this was found at the Welcome Library. and um, But but it was not... I, I, as a writer, I'm a big fan of libraries, and I fell in love also with the British Library. And I have to say that a high point of my life was getting my reader's card at the British Library. And that was huge, and I now spend a lot of time there. And I sit... Yeah, you know, right nearby the King's Library, and I feel like I'm in the center of the universe when I'm sitting there. And um, that, plus the incredible wealth of museums and, and theater here, just feeds my writer's soul. So I, I attend theater like at least three times a week while I'm here. I've probably seen 90 shows in the last few years. I just inhale theater and museums here, and I love it. That's a lot of stars on TripAdvisor, by the sounds of it. We've got to start nosing towards the credits, uh, we should say, of course. Uh, Art in the Blood is published by HarperCollins. It's under the Collins Crime Club imprint. And what's next for you? Are you you're going to go stateside, presumably? Um, well, I've, I've been contracted by HarperCollins to do a sequel to this. I'm, in, I'm hard at work on Unquiet Spirits, which takes place in the Scottish Highlands, has to do with the whiskey industry and ghosts of your past, another Sherlock Holmes, and an option for a third novel. So I'm very excited. Congratulations. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting beyond page uh, 30 myself. For now, from the Sherlock Holmes Hotel, quite close to the centre of the universe. Buddy McBeth, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Bonnie McBird. Thanks to to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.